Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hello and welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast. My name is Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel, and I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Glasgow. I'm very excited about today's podcast episode because I get to talk to Matt Pinkett. He's the author of Boys Don't Try, and his new book, Boys Do Cry, will be published soon. So today we're going to learn a bit about mental health in boys and about his new book. I'd like to add a trigger warning to this episode um, since we are going to discuss the topic of suicide today. But now I would like to welcome Matt. And can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your interest in this topic? Yeah, of course. So, uh, hi, uh, I'm, I'm Matt Pinkett. Um, so I'm an English teacher. Uh, I've been teaching full-time in school since, since 2012. Uh, during that time, I've, I've done loads of different things. I've been, I've been a head of English. I've been an assistant head. Uh, I've worked in special schools. I've worked in outstanding schools, inadequate schools, <laughs> good schools. Um, but currently, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, just being a teacher. So I've got, I'm, I'm lucky enough to find myself in that position where, um, I have no additional responsibilities, uh, which is nice. Uh, and as well as this, during that time, uh, since 2012, I've written two books on, mm -hmm. Or masculinity, or, or I guess adolescent masculinity, really. Um, so in 2019, uh, Boys Don't Try came out, which, which I co-authored with Mark Roberts. And that kind of just um, looks at how boys are doing in school, uh, academically, emotionally, behaviorally. Uh, and next month, I've got a new book, which I, I wrote alone, Uh, coming out and that that book's called boys do cry and it looks specifically at boys mental health and what schools can do to to, to kind of improve i guess the the well-being of, of boys um and and not just boys but also the the men that they will hopefully one day become mm -hmm. well thank you so much for joining our podcast before talking in detail about your new book can we chat a bit about your first book boys don't try It may help to understand your motivation a bit uh, for your second book. So what is Boys Don't Try about and what are the key messages you wanted to convey with it? Yes, good question. So Boys Don't Try came about really because uh, my co-author and I, I think we were just a little bit fed up with mm -hmm. boys underachievement in schools, uh, boys, the way boys underperform academically. I think, you know, you look at, exclusion data and stuff we can also say that um, arguably boys are worse behaved than girls are in schools so just kind of got a little bit fed up about that situation and wanted to do something about it um perhaps i can only really speak for myself here but but i think if i'm honest I'm also a little bit fed up with the way that teachers spoke or, or speak about boys mm -hmm. um, in terms of their behavior in terms of their kind of emotional intelligence in terms of their capacity for learning and, and, and fulfilling potential in school. And Mark and I, we started to think about that. We started to talk about that. And actually, when you start talking about the way teachers perceive boys or the way boys are performing or not performing in schools, 
academically, for example, you actually then just start to think about kind of other areas where either boys are, are being let down or or letting themselves down. And so, you know, what started off as a book looking at how boys perform academically went on to include chapters on on mental health. Uh, there was a chapter on kind of sex and sexism. There were chapters on violence. So yeah, the book's really an attempt to to kind of combat, I guess, the underperformance, the academic, the social, the emotional and the behavioral underperformance. Can I ask, uh, when you say that the way teachers um, talked about boys or how boys behaved and so on, can you give some examples for that um, so that we have a better idea what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of research to bear this out. We know that boys, um, along also with black students, uh, pupil premium students, SEND students, we know that boys are unfairly graded by teachers. Uh, but there have been studies to show that actually just the way we speak about boys. So teachers are more likely to give voice to opinions like uh, boys just naturally misbehave or boys don't like reading. Boys struggle in lessons. And, you know, there's been lots of studies looking at that. Uh, probably the biggest one was Deborah Myhill and Susan Jones at Exeter University that revealed that teachers, even when teachers actually explicitly give voice to this idea that boys and girls can perform equally, what that study showed that actually in follow-up interviews, what, what teachers actually reveal in their conversations about boys is that they actually have this deficit model of male achievement, uh, and there are lots of there are lots of things that teachers believe about boys that that aren't inherently biologically true, but perhaps we could argue become true through a kind of self fulfilling prophecy underpinned by a teachers' low expectations. So, in your new book, then you focus on boys' mental health uh, specifically. What was your motivation for this? That's a good question. I think I think as a society, I think we have become much more attuned to the issue uh, that is male mental health. I don't necessarily know if we've become attuned to the nuances um, around male mental health, but certainly I think it's kind of on the social agenda. When I decided to write it, I I, I, th I was struggling with my own mental health. Um, I'd had a relationship that ended. I was making certain decisions that, that actually led to me being out of work. And so I kind of, you know, I'd, I'd like to say it was all, you know, just out of this moral good. And of course, there is that, you know, you don't, you don't write a book about, you know, for example, male suicide without hoping that there will be some positive outcome as a result of writing that. But it wasn't, it wasn't entirely unselfish. You know, I was looking at myself thinking, how have I got here? You know, and certainly not excusing my own situation, but I do think perhaps had I been taught or educated about certain things in my adolescence, perhaps I wouldn't find, have found myself in that kind of quite difficult position that I that I'd found myself in at that point and so I just needed to do something positive really mm -hmm. um, and so I started to think about you know you started to think about the big things that 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 lots of people are already talking about when it comes to male mental health things like suicide things like men's 
or males' supposed inability or reluctance to talk about uh, their emotions. And again, like with the first book, once you start thinking about, you know, a kind of umbrella, more general area, such as in this case, boys' mental health or adolescents' male mental health, you get the big topics out of the way. And, and, and that makes room for actually some of the smaller things, actually, that perhaps you hadn't really considered either previously so i think it was a necessary book both on a personal level but also i i i I honestly think there's information in that book that could change the way we do things in school so i think at the risk of sounding arrogant i think i think there's stuff in there that that schools really need to know i really like the opening of your um of your book where you talk about why you focus specifically on boys instead of girls in your in your book um so i think one thing you said there was um, that many of the struggles that girls are experiencing in adolescence and then maybe later on in life as well stem from uh, boys not being able to acknowledge their emotions or uh, deal with their emotions. Um, I thought this was really interesting. Can you go into detail into that? I think there is a danger. Um, You know, I'm, I'm very aware nowadays that when I advocate for men, or boys, I'm often very aware, oh my, do I sound like one of these male rights activists? Um, <laughs> and I was very keen to, you know, let's, let's be honest, right? Um, I, I, in fact, I think in this book, the very first sentence of the whole book is boys cry, um, sorry, girls cry too, of course. And then um, there's a paragraph in which I talk about, you know, the absolute horrible things that that the girls are having to do with deal with in terms of their mental health for example you know i think i mentioned the fact that girls are twice more likely than than males are to actually try to take their own lives so Mm. although men are more likely to die by suicide women are actually far more likely to attempt to take their own lives so let's be under no illusion here um when we're looking at mental health girls do not have it easy. But that doesn't mean that a book on male mental health isn't important. And I think the reason this book is important is, yes, it's for the boys as well. Yes, it's to improve the life chances and opportunities and general life experience um, of, of, of boys and the men that they will one day become. But I also think that you know, one of the fundamental problems with gender inequality um, in this country and the fact that so many women are kind of routinely exploited, harassed and just generally made to feel bad is actually the root cause of that is male mental insecurity, a lack of male uh, mental strength, a lack of a lack of uh, many men just just don't love themselves um, in in the way I believe they should. And if you're, um, you know, this isn't obviously true of all men, but I think broken men often try to fix themselves through women. And I don't think that I don't think that is good for women. And in turn, of course, men. So I did. Yeah, I think it was important to to make the point that this is this isn't a book that's just about improving things for men. I do think that men who are more secure, men who respect consent, men who love themselves and can validate themselves in healthy ways 
are less likely to try and seek that validation through the the mistreatment of women, which mm-hmm. and I, I think that's really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when I looked through the book um, and the different topics, I very much enjoyed the topics you selected to dive into. So anger, suicide, LGBTQ+, friendships, body image, just to name a few. How did you decide which topics to explore? There were some that were obvious. Uh, lots, lots of people know or talk about male suicide. And many people are aware of, you know, the kind of grim statistics around it. But, you know, the one that's most commonly cited is the fact that, that men are three times more likely than women to kill themselves. So, you know, something like suicide was something I knew I had to include. And then there are other things that I think kind of fall into this discussion or lead into this discussion. Uh, So, for example, there's a chapter on talk. Uh, There's this very pervasive narrative in big media campaigns about male mental health that, that if men suffer or if men do go on to take their own lives, then it's because they're not talking. And... You know, that was something that really interested me. So, so I knew that had to go in. And then I think there are other really important issues relating to men's mental health that either we don't really consider to be a mental health issue. Uh, for example, anger, or there are issues that we, un- we know are problems, but we don't fully recognize as male ones. So, for example, body image, we, we you know, body image is, um, is certainly a, a, a mental health issue, but we don't necessarily fully recognize or value it as serious in terms of it being a male issue. And with regards to anger, you know, I think, I, I think anger is a mental health issue, but ag- anger in certainly in society, certainly in schools is so stigmatized that what we tend to do when we see anger in schools is we tend to punish it rather than, than treat it. So, mm-hmm. so that's kind of how the chapters w- were decided, I guess. There were, there were the obvious things, the big topics, the suicide, the talking. There were things that there were issues, but we, maybe we tend to think of them as female issues. Actually, well, let's write about them in this book and make, let's make people realize that actually boys suffer from you know, eating disorders as well. And then thirdly, yeah, there are these other things that I think maybe we don't actually fully recognize as mental health issues, but actually we should. The structure of each chapter in your book is quite nice. So each chapter starts with a lived experience account or story, then a section on research, and finally a section on solutions with suggestions on how the different aspects you raised can be applied in the classroom. I wonder whether you could maybe read the story part of one of the chapters from your book to give us a taste for the vibe of the book. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, before I do, I just want to say, I think, I think those stories that, that start each chapter are really important. I think um, the, the, the book is evidence-informed. There was a lot of research, there was a lot of talking to academics about their research. There was lots of reading of journals. And research is all well and good, but I do think that, you know, what makes us uniquely human is 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 the way we respond and the way we can engage with, with lived experience. So I do think that whilst the chapters a strength is 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 their reliance on on evidence, academic, scientific evidence, I do think that you need to make the evidence come alive. And so I think the stories mm-hmm. are really important. 
I'm going to read to you um, the the opening of uh, the chapter on self-harm and suicide. It's uh, a story that was written by a lady called Claire Milford Haven. Uh, and so I'll, ju- I'll just start reading the story. My son James, athletic, bright, charming James, underwent a minor operation on the 4th of December 2006. Six days later, he came home from Newcastle University to spend time with his family. He seemed a bit quiet and a bit down, not his usual self. I suggested we go for a walk together with our dogs. We walked for about an hour and a half, and during this time, he told me that he didn't feel right, that he felt down, and that his sex drive was reduced. I tried to reassure him that this was quite normal after operations, and that anaesthetics can make you feel a bit low and out of sorts. I told him to be patient, and I was sure that within a week or so, he would be back to his normal self. After the weekend, James flew back up to Newcastle for the last four days of, of term. He called me to say he got back okay and was feeling a bit better. But a few days later, a few days later, he did call me again to tell me he still felt not quite right. Again, I did my best to try and reassure him, and I told him that everything would be fine. Thanks, Mum, he said. You always make me feel better. What James neglected to tell me was that in actual fact, he was feeling so acutely anxious that that very morning, he had visited a walk-in centre in Newcastle to seek medical help. He was seen by a registered nurse who noted that James was concerned about the outcome of his recent operation. The nurse also noted that James had said he felt suicidal. Rather than keeping James there in a safe place and talking him through his concerns or calling the on-duty psychiatric registrar, he was transferred to A&E at the hospital next door. The priority level on James's report that morning was graded as 4. On a scale of 1 to 4, priority level 4 is the least serious. Patients graded at priority level 1 are a serious worry who require immediate treatment. James, a young man with suicidal thoughts, was given the same priority level level four, as someone who had complained of a toothache. James walked out of A&E. Following the initial triage, which, as explained above, had resulted in his being graded as the lowest priority in the A&E department that morning, he didn't want to wait up for four hours. He was an impatient, impulsive 21-year-old in considerable distress, and he needed to see someone straight away. The medical staff on duty at the hospital not only allowed James to walk out of the hospital in a suicidal state, but they also never contacted his family GP, whose details they took down on the report. Because of patient confidentiality, they also never contacted his next of kin, who happened to be me, his mother. Two hours after James left that A&E department, he walked into another doctor's surgery near his house in Jesmond, Newcastle. He filled out a new patient registration form and saw a doctor who states that James never mentioned his earlier visit to the walk-in centre or A&E. James discussed his concerns about the after effects of his recent operation. He apparently never made any reference to feeling suicidal. The doctor examined the area of the operation and said there was nothing to worry about and felt that she had reassured him by the time he had left the surgery. The following day, on Thursday the 14th of December, James was due to sit an exam and then drive home for the Christmas holidays. I expected him to arrive sometime around 10pm, but by 4.30pm he was already at home. I was surprised and asked about how his exam went. Did you do it? What had happened? I couldn't do the exam, Mum. I couldn't do it. There's something wrong. I'm not feeling right. This was the first time in 21 years that James had ever missed an exam. He looked shattered. He told me he had lost weight and he wasn't sleeping. And above all, he wasn't happy. Immediately, I rang our family GP and expressed my concerns. 
The GP said that if things didn't improve in the next few weeks, he would prescribe a course of antidepressants. That night, we had a family dinner and I noticed that James was quiet and not eating much, which was unusual. He was surrounded by all the people he loved, parents, siblings, cousins, but he seemed not to be enjoying any of it. Normally, he was the life and soul of the party. About two weeks later, on the 29th of December, James's GP did, in fact, receive a letter from the hospital in Newcastle. It turned out that the hospital, after all, had sent the report of James's visit to them. But they had sent it via second-class post in the week leading up to Christmas and to the wrong postcode. Sadly, it was a letter that arrived too late. Two weeks previously, on the 15th of December 2006, my son had already killed himself. Okay, so, yeah. Um, So, you know, it's real hard-hitting. You know, it's a really tragic story, that. But I think it's also a very powerful one, and I think that it's one that people need to hear, and I think it can do some good because, in actual fact, James defies the narrative of male mental health. James was talking about his problems. He was seeking help. But what that story illustrates is how, and I think it's, you know, I think it is relevant to schools, that when the systems we have in place aren't joined up, when we're not all working together, when we're not um, putting systems in place that are rigorous and robust, that actually even when boys or men do talk, and sometimes, you know, sadly, like James, um, they can slip through the net. So I think, um, you know, as painful as it was to hear Claire tell me that story, you know, her bravery is is amazing. Um, and, you know, she, she set up a charity called, um, it's called James's Place, uh, which, which, which helps men suffering um, with suicidal thoughts. Um, you know, some good has come out of it. And I, I do think it's a powerful story. And it does highlight a need for us to to actually rethink this idea that boys and men aren't talking and actually maybe reframe mm-hmm. it. Um, is the question or is the issue that, that the boys aren't talking or is it, in fact, that we're not listening? Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that that's something I'd urge certainly all schools to to kind of think about. Yeah, no, it's absolutely – I mean, it, it – it hits me to the core, uh, and probably our listeners as well. But I, I agree. It's important to, to share those stories and to reflect on those stories and to see, um, how can we learn from them as well. So let's stay a bit on that chapter on suicide and self harm. And maybe can you give us a short summary of the research behind this topic and then how you develop solutions based on the research? I'm, you know, I mentioned earlier that. Although the you know the statistics tell us that that suicide is the bigger biggest killer of young men, um, that men are three times more likely to be the victims of suicide. The reality is is that women are you know studies have shown twice as more likely to try to kill themselves, which mm-hmm. um, that is a you know that's a serious issue. But then we also have to think well. If women are more likely or females are more likely to try to take their own lives, why is it that that men are three times more likely to to die by suicide? Mm-hmm. And what that means is I think it's important because we need to think about this issue of anger mm-hmm. and the differences in how boys and girls express their anger and how society has made it socially acceptable 
for boys to express their anger in a way that we don't allow girls. We have to consider the ramifications of that anger. We have to consider the, the stigma that we attach to that anger. We need also to think about uh, how we talk about suicide. I spoke to the Samaritans in my research, and, and the book actually offers these guidelines to teachers uh, about how to talk about suicide. Um, I'm an English teacher. And it struck me that, you know, for 10 years of my career, every year I was teaching, you know, classes of kids, texts like Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth and Inspector mm-hmm. Calls, which feature suicide as, as quite a significant topic, quite central to the plot of those three texts. And yet I had zero training or knowledge in how to approach this issue of suicide with a bunch of 30 vulnerable teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of research into this um, about actually how should teachers be talking about suicide? How, what sort of language should we be using? What, what are we doing? um, or, Or rather, what are we not doing? And there are some quite, quite significant things that we're simply not doing. Uh, just through a lack of awareness. So uh, the the research into the suicide chapter, I think, probably for me, is probably the most important stuff stuff in the book there, I think. And it's not just English teachers, you know, um, history teachers, PSHE teachers. Uh, when teachers are talking with students in tutor time about their problems uh, and, I don't know, social issues, uh, I think suicide is something that comes up and I think we need as teachers to be a lot more in tune with what works and also what sort of things that actually we say quite regularly that actually stigmatize suicidal thoughts and and actually can exacerbate the negative feelings that perhaps a suicidal teenager might feel. Uh, I think there's stuff on self-harm as well that's really important, the differences in the way boys and girls self-harm and how a lot of those behaviours that boys exhibit that we might see as naughty, things like Mm -hmm. getting into regular fights, getting into regular altercations with the teacher, things like punching walls, things like alcohol abuse um, and even drug abuse as, as kids get older. We often think of those behaviours as purely naughty behaviours. And I actually think the, the bigger question to ask is, well, actually, is that a self-harm behaviour? Because there is evidence that boys are far more likely to self-harm in those ways rather mm-hmm. than, you know, for example, cutting themselves like like girls are more likely to do so um i think there's some assumptions that we make that that are quite frankly not true and i think that we we need to become aware of them and i think that you know obviously when a boy punches a wall or when a boy has a fight or when a boy flips a desk in class of course any behavior that puts another child or themselves at risk needs to be sanctioned because it's dangerous and it's threatening behavior. But I think we also need to be thinking about boys that are regularly engaging those sorts of behaviors and say, 
is this boy just being naughty or is he also mm-hmm. self-harming? Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that self-harmers are, you know, again, far more likely um, to be at risk of suicide. So we, you know, so these are important things that we need to be aware of. And I just think that um, I just don't, I, I just don't think that we are as teachers or as a profession. Um, certainly not your everyday classroom teacher made aware of these things enough. It might be that the, the safeguarding leads are or the pastoral staff, but is your average maths teacher told that, you know, the person in their tutor group who's getting into a fight every day, actually that could be a form of self-harm? Are they, are they being told that? The answer is no, they're not. So this is just one topic out of many topics um, that you explore in your book in relation to boys' mental health in the educational context. Was there a chapter that was more challenging to write than others? Um, and if so, why? Yeah, I, th- I wrote a chapter on exclusions. That was very difficult to write. As I, I'd read about the link to um, you know regular or, or prolonged exclusion from school and its links to you know, mental health issues as an adult. Uh, and as I was reading this book, uh, sorry, as I was doing the research for this chapter on exclusions, um, you become very quickly aware that black black boys are disproportionately at risk of exclusion. And a lot of the research shows that there is an inher- uh, inherent, I guess, institutionalized racist bias uh, against black boys and that's that's difficult you know i i'm a i'm a i'm a white middle class male like you know how do i write about that in a way that is authentic without seeming patronizing that covers the issue without seeming trite and then as i was you know getting my head around this chapter and thinking about how i can write about you know the black experience of school well then all of a sudden something else reared its head boy you know black boys um black caribbean boys are three times more likely than white boys to be excluded from school but then all of a sudden i'm finding out that gypsy uh romany traveler children are 17 times more likely Mm -hmm. to be excluded from school so now it's like okay i had this chapter plan where i was going to write about (laughs) um you know this racial bias that was going on in schools and and you know, I don't want to not do that, but also there's this other group of children, traveller children, who are who are also at the risk of you know this real not at risk, you know, victims of this this racial bias. How do I write about those two very different cult you know, similar in some ways, but also very different distinct cultural groups without conflating their experiences without trivializing their experiences without stereotyping but also writing about it in such a way where doing some good you know and Mm. so so i think that was a chapter that was that that was difficult to write simply because of my lack of actual lived experience obviously because i'm not a traveler (laughs) and because i'm not you know, I'm not black. So, so writing about those things, you know, quite frankly, were, were a little bit more difficult. You know, I, I luckily, um, I had loads of, loads of people from the black, you know, black communities and from, from GRT, um, you know, gypsy Romany traveler communities that were willing to talk to me Mm -hmm. and read what I'd 
written and and, feed, and give me some really excellent feedback. So so I hope I've done a good job. Yeah, no, I mean that that's fantastic that you then reached out to the communities and had you know them being involved in that as well and receive feedback. I think um, that shows the care around um, around these topics. So far, we have discussed the book in relation to education and how teachers may use it. However, the book is not exclusively aimed at teachers, but also at parents and carers of young people. What is your recommendation on how parents and carers of young boys should approach and use this book? That's, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, I think... I think when it comes to mental health, actually, I think the the line between or the distance between teachers of boys and parents of boys, that line or that distance becomes a lot narrower. Obviously, I'm an English teacher. There is a distance between me as a teacher and a parent because presumably the parent isn't an English teacher. They haven't been teaching English for as long as I have. They don't know the specification. They, you know, they haven't got a degree in English. And so there is a distance that makes naturally, it makes sense that I will do the English teaching and they will do the parenting. I think when it comes to mental health, that distance between parents and teachers becomes a lot narrower because all of a sudden, yes, I'm an English teacher, But it's my moral duty to ensure that the boys and the girls that I teach are happy and as healthy as they can be. And even if, you know, even if I, even thinking it purely in terms of my subject, you know, if I want my kids to do well in my subject, they need to be happy. They need to be healthy. And so you have to care about the mental health of your students and you do have to take on, I guess, that more kind of nurturing role where all of a sudden you're a teacher who isn't just thinking about your maths or the history that you've got to teach or the art that you've got to teach. You do have to think about, you know, is my student feeling happy? Are they feeling safe? How are they doing with their anger this morning? Mm. And these are all things that a parent has to think about as well. You know, is my son happy? Is he going to school? And will he feel safe and comfortable at school? So I think that issue of mental health, um, we're almost kind of, I guess, doing a similar job. And so I think lots of advice in the book um, is about language. It's about how we speak. It's about how we listen. It's about how we think about boys and what boys are capable of or not capable of. And so I think actually parents can just pick up this book and, and, and read it. And I think at times, I, you know, I certainly would hope that all they would have to do is substitute the word teacher for parent. Mm -hmm. And they find that actually much of the advice or lots of the advice in there um, can, can be used in the context of, of the domestic or the home environment. Certainly, you know, we, we've got a chapter on pornography, for example, looking at pornography, uh, the effect that pornography has on boys. Now, yes, of course, as teachers, we need to be aware of, of, of pornography and we need to have some sort of vested interest in boys and girls being porn literate. But of course, that's also something a parent has to take some mm -hmm. accountability for as well. And so I think 
I would hope that parents reading the book, um, you know, there's a chapter, for example, on um, on friendships and what boys need from friendships and how boys can form friendships and how you should speak about relationships with boys. I would hope that, you know, chapters like that, um, boys, sorry, parents of boys can can kind of just pick it up and read it and, and, and run with it in their own context. That, that's, that's what I would hope. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. So I'm a parent of a boy. Um, and when I looked at the chapters and read chapters through and with the recommendations, um, I could, I could see that, you know, how this maps into parenting and decisions you make as a parent as well, or things you should be aware of uh, specifically. So it was quite helpful. As my final question, I always ask about practical tips for teachers. Now, obviously, there are many practical tips offered in your book. But if you had to pick, let's say, three recommendations for teachers that you learned while writing your book and that can be easily implemented, maybe that you implement yourself as a teacher, mm. what would they be? Okay, I think, well, where do we go? I th right, okay, let's talk about, um, I think the link between physical activity and mental health is, is immense. I think that as teachers, we can all get a lot better in espousing the mental health benefits of physical activity. I think lots of students are, particularly those students teachers might describe as academic students, are put off um, physical activity because it's associated with kind of competitiveness and an emphasis on being skillful at say a particular sport such as football I think actually a lot of you know kids do do less and less physical activity as they get older students are so mentally uh, sorry it's so mental health literate nowadays and I think that if all of us um, talk about sport or physical activity even something like walking we talk about it as something that has mental health benefits i think that could go a long long way in ensuring that kids maintain um, appropriate levels of physical activity um, and I, th I, th i think that often teachers can we can be a bit jokey if we're not very sporty ourselves perhaps we're um, yeah, more academic as it were we can joke about our own lack of physical prowess mm -hmm. in the classroom and we you know we're talking about our weekends or you know talking to kids but actually i think being seen to be being active to you know when when a kid says what do you do at the weekend say oh you know i went on a nice long walk and yeah i felt really good afterwards i think i think just those little differences i think that can be really key I, I think I will make the point there. I do have to make the point that I'm aware that some teachers perhaps are physically disabled. Um, and so obviously, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about the benefits of a walk. But, you know, there are other um, physical um, you know, things that we can do to, to, to maintain um, good mental health. So I think espousing the mental health benefits of physical mm -hmm. activity and modeling or, or, or talking about them where we can is, is really important. Uh, I think another thing we can do is is we can simply change the way we talk about suicide. Mm -hmm. I still hear far too many teachers writing and talking about what they call committing suicide, which is which is inappropriate. Uh, suicide was um, was illegal uh, until 1961. Uh, it's no longer illegal. 
we can commit murder, we can commit robbery, we can commit arson, but using the phrase commit suicide attaches a stigma to suicide, um, which could, you know, language is so important. And when we talk about the fact that Romeo and Juliet commit suicide, or we talk about, I don't know, in a history lesson about the way Roman soldiers used to commit suicide by falling Mm -hmm. upon their swords rather than being taken by the enemy. Actually, what we're doing is we're contributing to the stigmatization of suicidal thoughts, which, you know, which could prevent a student who has suicidal thoughts from, from actually talking about them openly. So I think we could really look at, look at the way we talk about suicide. Thirdly, what do I think? I, 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 I think we do need to bear in mind that listening is important. There is some, there's a, gr- a great section in the book that looks at some research on the differences in the way boys and girls listen to each other. So I think we need to, to, to remind ourselves that actually boys, um, boys are actually very keen to talk about their problems. The, the chapter on friendship shows that boys crave, absolutely crave emotional, emotional intimacy with other boys. Mm-hmm. The problem is when they are emotionally intimate, um, when it comes to the listening thing, there are things that boys simply do not do. Girls are far more likely, for example, just to nod, nod, mm-hmm. and do those kind of nonverbal cues that say, I am listening to you. Mm-hmm. Boys are far more likely than girls to make a joke when somebody has made an emotional revelation to them. And so I think we need to remember that actually what we need to be doing is teaching and modeling good listening habits for boys. And, you know, this doesn't just happen in a lesson on listening. When a boy talks to you about his opinion on, I don't know, Martin Luther King in a history lesson, or if in a an art lesson, a boy is giving his opinion on a piece of artwork that the teacher has, you know, shown the class. I think actually as teachers getting better at modeling good listening behaviors so that boys can learn how to listen because i you know like i say i don't think the problem is that boys aren't talking i think the problem is that the the, the boys aren't really listening to each other um mm-hmm. not through a lack of not for a lack of desire but just they've been gendered in such a way that the boys don't listen in the, in the way that they really should to each other so i think we can we can do that um a lot there so I mean, I went on a bit there, you know. It's, it's very. No, no, it's fine. No. <laughs> you know, it's espousing the mental health benefits of physical activity, mm-hmm. remembering that listening is important, and changing the way that we talk about suicide. I think they're three mm-hmm. things we can all do very quickly, um, mm-hmm. and actually, the sooner we make conscious efforts in those areas to improve how we manage them. Um, it can it can just become habitual, which I think is really important. Okay, so this brings us to the end of this episode. Um, I'd like to thank Matt again for joining our podcast today and for sharing his insights into boys' mental health from his book, Boys Do Cry. So when is the book going to be available? Uh, Amazon's telling me the 17th of May. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what I'm going for, 17th <laughs> of May. All right. That's great. To all our listeners, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode and stay safe. And until next time, goodbye. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.